0: Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either.
1: In the first part, we introduced the Ramsey family and then went through what we know happened and or what was reported to have happened from Christmas morning, 1996, through John Binet's autopsy, which was performed the morning of December 27th this case has lingered for 27 years. Because of the developments and additional information throughout the years, we think it makes the most sense to discuss the evidence in the case, item by item, with the benefit of time and all the information available. And then we'll get into the major theories about the case and where the investigation is
0: today. Before we talk about the evidence in this case, I think it's important to just note a couple initial details about the investigation and sort of uh, what was going on around the time and some details. So first off, Bob, do you know how many murders there were in Boulder in 1996? Not a clue. Well, there was one, and it was this murder. Uh, And I bring that up just to say, I don't know about you, but uh, if I'm going to go get a surgery, I don't necessarily want, like, the doctor at the urgent care to do it. Um, But if I was faced between, you know, like, my appendix ruptured and I was going to die, and it was between me cutting it out myself or having the urgent care doctor, I would certainly appreciate the urgent care doctor's expertise over my own. Um, so I'm not disparaging the investigators who initially investigated this case, but just pointing out the fact that we're in an area where this isn't a commonplace occurrence. We're not dealing with, uh, you know, murder upon murder upon murder. This isn't Chicago. This isn't New York. Um, this is Boulder, Colorado. And uh, my understanding is they didn't even have a, a homicide division, so to speak, because it just wasn't a thing there.
1: On the flip side, though, if there's only one murder in the entire year, it's going to get all the undivided attention.
0: That is true. And a, a ton of resources are put on this case, um, rightfully so. Uh, but I just say that to say, you know, uh, there, there's a level of expertise that maybe was missing. I'm sure the investigators from the original case might disagree with me. And, you know, that's not to say that they weren't good cops, they weren't good investigators. I don't mean that at all. I just mean that I think, you know, the more reps you get, the more you deal with a certain type of thing. Maybe you handle it a little differently than somebody who doesn't.
1: Maybe. I'm just thinking about the recent video we did about the FBI crime statistics, which included some clearance data. And for this police department this year, their homicide clearance rate was either going to be 0% or 100%. That's true.
0: Um, And I think some other things to note, you know, talking about crimes and things like that, that are related. Although there weren't any other homicides that year, There were a ton of burglaries, even in the area where the Ramseys lived, which was a nice area. My understanding is that there had been uh, upwards of like 100 burglaries in the recent months around this crime. So it wasn't uncommon for people to be having their houses broken into. And I also know from looking at some of the uh, statistics from back then that there were, I want to say, a couple dozen registered sex offenders who lived within like a two mile radius of the Ramsey home. So I think that's also just worth mentioning
1: very comforting.
0: Yeah. Now with that, let's go ahead and look at the actual evidence or items that have been scrutinized throughout the years in this case. And I think the first one uh, that kind of, to me, it just makes the most sense to talk about it first, because chronologically, this is where everything gets kicked off, right? And that is the ransom note. It's just incredibly long. I mean, typically, I don't know about you, you think of a a ransom note, and it's sort of like shortened to the point, right? You know, we have whoever, this is what we want, this is when we want it. Maybe this is how we'll communicate with you. And then that's kind of the end of it, right? Here, not the case. In the last episodes, you know, you got to hear the audio of, of what it was. Uh, some people have said this is one of the longest ransom notes that, that they're aware of in, you know, um, American kidnappings and other cases. So certainly the length of it alone, forgetting the content just makes it interesting. And maybe some people, you know, and, and you can interpret that in different ways. Some people have interpreted that to be, well, nobody who is an intruder would sit in this house and write this ransom note for 21 minutes, uh, which is about how long investigators have have, written it out and they've timed it. They think it would take at least about 21 minutes to write it out. So who would come in, break into this house, and either do this crime or be preparing to do this crime and then write this super long ransom note? And the flip side of that is,
1: Maybe it was somebody that was comfortable being in the house for whatever reason.
0: Right, right. That You can interpret the evidence different ways, but I think it is notable and interesting that it is the length that it is.
1: The first instinct, I agree, is that that is way too long of a note for some outsider that's come in to leave, to sit there and write all that. But on the other hand, there have been cases where the, the murderer has been found to have stayed in the home and smoked four or five cigarettes. As evidenced by the butts and the turtlet. Mm-hmm. and there've been other cases. I remember one case where the intruders killed the guy, and then and it was an elderly man, and then they not only took his Reese cups out of the refrigerator and ate them at the scene, and they know this because the wrappers were left behind. And I don't know who can beat a senior citizen to death and then stand there and eat, you know, Reese cups. All their refrigerated Reese cups are kind of the bomb. But
0: this is what I'm saying: if somebody eats my refrigerated Reese cups. I better already be dead.
1: Yeah, that was insult to injury there.
0: Um, yeah, and, and it's a great point. I mean, to the, to the people who say like, well, nobody would ever do that. Well, <laughs> if history's taught us anything, it's there's a lot of weirdos out there. I think now with ring cameras and stuff, we've started to see, and I forget what the name of this crime is, but the people who will kind of go into somebody's house and essentially just hang out and live there while they're not in there or even while they are there and just sort of, you know, make themselves at home. All right, squatters. There you go, squatters. Um, yeah, so I, I, I don't know that I put a lot of stock in, oh, this is definitive, but I do think that the length of the note certainly is an interesting aspect.
1: Well, how about the fact that there's a note left when the daughter, the person that's being supposedly ransomed here is dead in the basement?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and that's odd. That is odd. And so that's caused some investigators to speculate that perhaps whoever wrote the note, wrote the note before the crime occurred, so maybe they wrote it intending to kidnap her. Um, and then things just went sideways and instead of kidnapping her, she ended up uh, dead. Wow. So, and, and yeah, we'll kind of talk about that a little more later. The next thing that is important about any handwritten note is the handwriting. Um, and so handwriting analysis experts have scoured this thing. They've looked at it. Uh, Generally speaking, they seem to reach similar conclusions. You know, there's variations in different experts reaching different opinions. One thing I will say is that experts sort of universally have said that the, the handwriting does not belong to John Ramsey. On the flip side of that, experts have said that they are unable to rule out Patsy, but everything that I've seen has indicated that while they're unable to rule her out, they don't necessarily think she's most of them don't think she's a good fit. It's like she could have written it, but you know, there's not really enough here for us to even say we think like she's probably the the author of the note.
1: Yeah, the comparison seems to be from what I saw in the watching the Lynn Hernan trial and the FBI agent that testified about the handwriting, it seemed that there was a continuum that sort of had five points. The center was we have no idea. And Two squares to the one side to the right is pretty strong evidence that it was this person, whoever the, the person is you're evaluating. Then on the left, there's pretty strong evidence that they're not. And for the most part, the analysis ends up like in the middle of no evidence either way or eh, there's a little something that says it could be this person or eh, there's a little something that says it's probably not this person. But it's not like a definitive thing, like a blood type, like, Mm -hmm. oh, this was absolutely written by this person.
0: Yeah. And I think the handwriting analysis in and of itself, it has value, but I think we have to be careful because um, I I don't think it, it falls in the category of junk science by any means, but it certainly is, it's heavily based on interpretation and interpretation is subjective. And so to your point, right, blood typing, that's more concrete, that's more scientific. There's basis in this, and I think it can be a helpful tool. But I certainly don't think it's the kind of thing that you could say, you know, oh, well, we, we should put somebody in prison solely based on handwriting analysis.
1: No, I, I agree with you there. And I also, I think it's like bite mark analysis where it's more useful in perhaps ruling people out and directing an investigation than identifying a suspect hmm. positively.
0: Now, see, I would argue bite mark analysis is complete junk science. I think, <laughs> I think it's been shown to just be like awful. Uh, maybe we'll do an episode about that sometime.
1: Okay. You know, I think bite mark analysis has its place in in identifying that, look, there's no way this person's teeth could have made these marks.
0: Oh, I see what you in mean. In
1: certain cases. But it should never be used to determine, positively identify someone.
0: I see. So you're saying like, uh, you know, if uh, they compare the this bite and it's like, oh, well, you have a completely different size mouth and a totally different, you know, you got two missing chompers back here. And so there's no way you could have ever done this just to exclude people.
1: Right. Yeah. If mm. the bite mark is a complete semicircle, you know, a half circle and the guy that you think did it is missing four front teeth. And you look at that, there's, you know, this guy did not make this mark with those, with that mouth mm. at
0: least. Yeah. I haven't thought about it like that before. That's interesting. So we will we, we'll have to uh, bookmark that for a future episode. That would be fun to talk about. The next point is linguistics. And looking at the note, there's some things that are kind of interesting. Specifically, there are words that are used that seem to indicate or would at least make the reader want to believe that the person who wrote the note has some kind of education or at least if familiarity with words that are not as common, like attache case. And uh, I think there's the word is used, um, even foreign faction. I mean, I, there's some words in there that are just not in the everyday parlance of, you know, the average person, I think.
1: Yeah. I noticed that there was something weird about the linguistics of the letter and I couldn't put my finger on it. And it made me think that either this is a very, like a specific use of language that someone familiar with the writer would probably recognize the the manner of it or it was intentionally disjointed so that the author wouldn't be identified but as far as the like the whole foreign faction and the we us and these guys and those guys it kind of makes me wonder thinking to like chris voss from the fbi the negotiator and some other people have said the same thing that a lot of times when people are talking about we and them and making it sound like there's a, a group, the more they emphasize how there's a group, the more likely it is really just one person. And when people say, focus on the I and me there's probably a group behind them, which is a a weird irony. Uh But, you know, I'm just saying I don't think you can hold a whole lot of stock in the fact that there was or wasn't a group or whatever. And what group calls themselves a foreign faction?
0: And signs the letter SBTC, which nobody, at least at this point, has been able to figure that out. What is that even supposed to mean, right? It's weird. It's very weird. Next is just some of the information that's in the note. For example, there's a there's a place where it says, um, to use your, your good Southern common sense, John.
1: Oh, yeah. Like, and he's from Georgia or whatever,
0: right? Well, so that's what's interesting about it is that he had lived, he and Patsy had come from Atlanta previously right before Boulder, but that's not where he was from.
1: Oh, yeah. He was originally
0: from Michigan and had only been in Atlanta just, you know, for that bit that brief period before he came to Colorado. So to me, that seems to suggest somebody who maybe knew that he came from Atlanta, but didn't actually know where he was from.
1: Right. Or somebody that wanted to make it look like Mm -hmm. they knew he was from Atlanta, but didn't know he was from
0: the Midwest. Exactly. Right. So that was, that was an interesting thing. It was another note. Another interesting thing, which we can, we can just spend some time talking about is the ransom demand. So here you've got uh, John Ramsey, who's worth six, seven million dollars, and the ransom demand is for one hundred and eighteen thousand. First of all, I mean that's a weird number, right? It's very specific. <laughs> yeah, very specific and very odd. You think it would be a hundred, two hundred, two fifty, five hundred, a million? You know, one of these kind of uh, you know just a number you would pull out of your hat. You know, somebody says, "Well, how much money do you want?" And, oh, you know, quarter million dollars. But instead we have 118,000, which just very specific, seems kind of odd. And then it, it get, takes on this heightened interest once the investigators did learn or determine that John had received a bonus and the net of that bonus was, uh, or the report that the amount that was reported on his paycheck was $118,000 or, or just about, I think it was a little bit over that it was 118 and some change. What? Yeah. And then, and then people say, well, okay. Who could possibly know that? You know, only the Ramses could know that. So clearly they did it. But then you find out that their house was, even though they had housekeepers and, you know, whatever, they got a 7,000 square foot house and they have kids there. And apparently they were, you know, like real people like I am. And so they have plenty of mail laying out and around on their counter and wherever else. And so he had a number of paycheck stubs that were sort of around the kitchen in the same area where this note was written. It would not have been crazy for whoever wrote it, if it were an intruder, to find one of those paycheck stubs while he's looking around for a notepad and a pen and everything else, or just being nosy, and to see that amount and then pick that out. I mean, it seems at least possible.
1: Oh, yeah, I can see that. And also, like, you can't just say, well, it had to be the Ramses because of this amount, because whoever, you know, at his work, anybody that worked with him in accounting and payroll and whatever, they would all know this. His bosses would know this. Uh, the people that process the paychecks, the bank, all that. There'd be plenty of people in the world that would know this particular amount, but I just got to say, I I got in the wrong line of work. I one hundred eighteen thousand dollars bonus.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm doing something wrong here, dude.
0: You should. I mean, you know, technology is where it's at, especially in uh, you know the late '80s. Now, the next thing that's interesting is, and I, I, I think it's important to say, so that the note itself comes from a pad of paper that Patsy had that was sort of nearby the kind of the telephone in this area of the, the kitchen area, whatever. So it's written on the paper, it, up the person who writes it uses a pen that's also nearby the pad. And it, my understanding is it's kind of like a pad that you'd keep sort of near the phone in the kitchen. You know, if you need to make a note about something, somebody calls, you wanna to remember to pick something up, whatever. So you kind of, you kind of write these things down there. So investigators found a sheet of paper that had been ripped out that had what looked to be like a practice note or the beginning of a practice note. And in that one, it said, dear Mr. and Mrs. And then it had the, um, like the beginning of an R, how you would write what I would, you know, kind of that vertical line where you would start the R, I'm trying to think how to describe that. A in, single downstroke. Yeah. Oh wow, look at you, fancies. A single downstroke. Right. And um and that was it. And then that was kind of discarded. And then you have the note. And then as they continued to investigate, they found that this pad is sort of, my understanding is kind of like a composition notebook, something like that. That that was Patsy's, there were pages that were missing from the pad. And so there's thought there that Maybe this person wrote practice notes, uh, practiced what they were going to write or whatever, which is interesting.
1: Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that is.
0: And it's also interesting that the note itself comes from a pad of paper that's inside the house that was there and used a, and the, the author used a pen that was also inside the house. Um, you would think maybe if your intent is to perform a, a kidnapping that you would come maybe with the ransom note already in hand. <laughs> right. Uh, but, and then that kind of adds to this idea that like, like you said earlier, is like, why would anybody write this if the if John Bonet is, you know, dead in the basement? And and it does make you wonder, what is the point of it? it? It is certainly bizarre. And I mentioned that the author used the pen that was near the notepad. There were no prints on the pen. And I think they believe that it was essentially wiped clean because no prints were on the pen. Hmm. And you would think being in the house, having been used, being a basket there, you know, there, there should be some prints on it, but instead there were no prints. Makes sense. Yeah. So anything else uh, you want to talk about with the ransom note?
1: No, you just have to wonder everything that you said. And, and of course, the obvious question there is that was that ransom note just some kind of a cover, but it, it, it doesn't make any sense at all that you would leave a dead child in this basement room and think she's not going to be found there. Mm -hmm. You know, perhaps the the perpetrator thought maybe that would buy them a day or two, but unless you like know this house or I don't know how you would know that, well, this is a room these folks are never going to go in. I mean, eventually they are going to go in it, but it just seems odd to me.
0: Mm -hmm. So I think the next evidence that's important to talk about is the DNA evidence in the case. And uh, there was DNA, well, DNA that was important or at least noteworthy. It was recovered in three places that I think are noteworthy places to recover DNA evidence from. In John fingernail clippings, uh, from a, my understanding, it was from one of the blood stains in her underwear and from the inside, like waistband, elastic, waistband area of the Long Johns, like the little kind of
1: pajama pants.
0: PJ pants that she had on that morning. So there was touch DNA recovered from there. And I've read about this a lot. There's kind of conflicting reporting in terms of how detailed it is. But my understanding is the fingernail clippings and the underwear, the DNA that was recovered is male DNA and it is from the same person. And it is not from anybody in the Ramsey family.
1: Do we know if they checked like laundry services or in talking about the touch DNA specifically, like could that have come from a laundry service or uh, uh, someone that worked inside the home or something? With the blood, if you got DNA in blood, that's not touch evidence.
0: Right. So the touch DNA is the from the Long Johns. That's right. my understanding. That's where they pulled that from. And to be clear, that's the one, and I kind of left that out when I said that. So my, there's conflicting reports on how much of a match the Long Johns DNA is to these other two that do match. And I've seen it kind of reported different ways. I think it's safe to say that at the very least that the markers that they have for the Long Johns evidence. That DNA is consistent with the DNA that was recovered from the fingernail clippings and the underwear.
1: Well, those two fingernail clippings and underwear, those are not touch DNA. So who's that person?
0: Right. And, and that's really it. It's, it's you know, who who is that? Now, some people say that, well, you know, the scene was so compromised and this and that, but I, I, I get that the scene was compromised. And if we were talking about DNA that was recovered, you know, on the outside of her PJ pants or On the outside of her PJ pants and from her skin somewhere, you know, on her face or something like that. I totally, I I think it would have a lot less value. But we're talking about fingernails, under your fingernails. Right. And then in your underwear. I'm sorry, I don't see where anybody, Fleet or John Ramsey or Burke or anybody else why would their DNA? Yeah, just so
1: float in the air and land in those places. That makes no sense. So I'm assuming they've checked the DNA under the fingernail clippings and underwear against all of the males that know the Ramsey family because they had a pretty big group of friends.
0: I wouldn't say I wouldn't go so far to say everybody who knew them. I know that's something that and, and remember, this is an open investigation. It's an ongoing investigation. So uh, Boulder police a lot of this stuff they're not going to comment on because it's an open and ongoing investigation.
1: And I'm not suspecting any of those people. I'm just saying as a matter of, you got to rule them out. Ruling out all the people around so that you you know you're looking for somebody else.
0: Yeah, it's my understanding that I would say a majority of the people who were close family friends or or who who you would think like, well, maybe there's some way that you can explain this away for whatever reasons. You know, like you said, maybe somebody helped out and did a load of laundry and maybe somebody was there, you know, playing with John Bonet that day. And, you know, th- there could be some innocent explanation for it. Um, I, I my understanding is those people who you would think, you know, we need to get these people ruled out so that we just know that this isn't some coincidence or this isn't didn't happen in some innocent way. I, I believe most of those people have been ruled out, if right. not all.
1: And the people that she was at the friends and family, whatever, house, all that earlier in the day.
0: Yeah. But still, like you said, these people, they had a big circle. They had Christmas parties. They had all kinds of people coming in and out right. of their house. Have they ruled out everybody? I don't think they've ruled out every single person who who was in their orbit, or at least that's not my understanding. And I think there's some folks who... Yeah, I, I think there's more work to be done there for sure. I'll just leave it at that. Okay. Now, the next thing that I think is, is pretty relevant here is that there's evidence of some type of sexual assault, particularly, you know, I've read in the reporting that this wooden paintbrush that was used as a garrot, that it, there was um, investigators believe that some part of it, another part of it, that part, whatever, uh, that had possibly been used.
1: Oh, dear. God, that's e- disgusting.
0: Yeah. And, and based on evidence and things that they had recovered, and then also based on the autopsy report, it, it appeared that there, there may have been some form of sexual assault that was done.
1: I can't believe with this DNA evidence and the way the CODIS database has built up and the genealogy DNA that's out there. And what is that? Is it AuthRAM?
0: Uh, yeah. Yeah. But here's the problem, though the police office, uh, the police department has to want to go down that uh, genealogy DNA trail. Right. That's not something that, you know, CODIS, that's automatic. But let me posit this for you. Let's say, hypothetically, that whoever perpetrated this crime did it. It's 1996. And then let's say they go and they get arrested and they commit some other crime and they, they did some nasty stuff in like, I don't know, 2000, 2003, something like that. And they get put away for 20 years. Depending on what state they're in, the jurisdiction, it could be possible if they were convicted and that they didn't have their DNA taken and uploaded into CODIS. So you could have a situation where whoever committed this crime did some other crime, they got caught of, and then they got put away for a while, and they didn't have their DNA collected. And so they're in custody, but not in the system. Oh, wow. I think that's a very real possibility in this case. Okay, so, and I don't really want to get into the details, but I think it's just important to note that there is at least evidence of sexual assault. Moving into the next thing is the open window in the train room there's a lot of conversation about this. I think the the kind of the two camps in this case are the people who think that the Ramses did it versus the people who think an intruder did it. And that seems to be the way the theories kind of get broken up. And this is probably one of those things that, that those camps argue about and fight about the most. Now, John had said that he had broken this window after he locked himself out a while back. And so he broke the window, the glass in it, and, and he was able to reach in, unlock it, open it, and whatever. Now, although some investigators and experts, and I've seen this, have said that nobody could get through that window, it would just be impossible. Uh, Lou Smith, who is uh, an investigator, detective, retired detective, who then was hired to investigate this case by the DA's office, he actually, on video, demonstrated that he could climb in and out of that window. It was a tight space, but he could do it. And the fact that it was a tight space becomes kind of interesting because the the people who think that, that this window, at least, was not used as a point of entry point to a video that was taken by the police department the morning when they were, you know, kind of videotaping the whole house uh, when they responded for this kidnapping. And there's a little cobweb um, down in the bottom, if you're from the inside looking out at the bottom left-hand corner. And it's not very big, uh, but it's big enough that you think, well, okay, if somebody squeezed through this window, uh, an adult man, there's a good chance, like his clothes, whatever, he's going to, th- th- every part of him is going to be touching some part of this windowsill. And so this cobweb would have to be knocked out. And there's been a, I mean, you you could probably spend six months to a year just researching this cobweb issue, the amount of information that's out there. I don't
1: know. Some of them cobwebs are like steel. You know, I've tried to get rid of some of like a garden hose or a pressure washer or whatever and like thinking, what in the world did this spider eat? Because this thing is tough. And I had personal experience getting in one of them tiny basement windows from being locked out one one night while I was out.
0: Don't say too much.
1: I was out partaking and uh, my, my wife and kids were asleep and refused to wake up to answer. So I went to the basement window and it's one of those that sort of, you know, flips open like a, I don't know, a tray or whatever, just a little up and down window. And so finally I decide to uh, to make my way through there and wasn't exactly nimble or having all my faculties about me, courtesy of Jack Daniels, who was helping me with this. And uh, the next thing I know, going through that window, I am hanging by my foot from the basement window, can't quite reach the floor. And I'm dangling there by my foot going, well, this is a nice situation you got yourself in. Everybody's asleep. Nobody even hears this. And uh, it was my shoe that was caught in the window. So I managed to get my foot out of the shoe and fall to the floor and go on. So, uh, And I don't know if I touched a cobweb or not.
0: I was just going to ask if there were any cobwebs. But uh, to your original point about how sometimes they can be quite stubborn, and I've seen people talk about this, you know, oh, well, I, I live in Colorado, And there are some cobwebs that I can't get off with a power washer. Uh, So I I think it's, to me, this is one of those things people kind of get hung up on parts that don't matter. Is it possible that somebody came in that window? Yes, it's possible. Uh, Look if
1: the entire window was completely covered by a cobweb that morning. Even that morning, them little spider bitches are quick.
0: That's a great point. I mean, it's like you know where I want to go. Because you can take
1: one of their webs down, you know, mm-hmm. manually, physically, and then you turn around an hour later, and you like you huzzy.
0: Yeah. So investigators actually talked to some guy at the <laughs> University of Colorado uh, who is known as like the Spider Man, well, the Spiderologist. Yeah. Apparently, he's like an expert in this. Which I, okay. And, uh, essentially what he said was, well, depending on when the person would have went out the window, it it was, it'd be entirely possible that a spider could kind of rebuild this web in, you know, less than 12 hours. It wasn't outside the realm of possibility. Wow! So you look at all the evidence and you say, you know, could somebody have went in and out the window? Yes, they could have. And that's what really matters. And it's also important to note the reason why this jumped out to the investigator, Lou Smith, who looked at this was because when you're standing inside the basement, you're looking at the window, and so the window's kind of up. It's a decent bit off the, off the floor. It reminds me a bit like your story. If you tried to come in and you got stuck, you'd probably dangle and not quite touch the floor. Um, but right there in front of the window, there was this suitcase that was just positioned in a way that looked like, well, I need to get out of this window, so let me put this suitcase here. I'm going to jump up on it and, and climb out the window. And then there happened to be a black mark on the wall consistent with an area where, you know, if you went to try to climb out the window, right? that's where you'd put your foot on the wall and whatever. So it just looked like somebody had used this to, to get out of the house. Uh, now, it was it the perpetrator? Is that exactly what happened? I don't know. It wasn't there. But certainly this, this seems like a at least a possible, if not plausible, theory of uh, a point of entry and exit for the house. I'd also point out this is on the side of the house where there was, you know, there was no no snow. I know that's a thing that people always, well, what about the snow and the the footprints and whatever? And, you know, that, that wasn't, that was leaked by the, by the police to the media. And it wasn't true. The fact that, you know, well, there were no footprints in the snow. Well, there was a whole half of the house that had no snow on the ground for there to be any footprint.
1: Right, right, right.
0: So um, next, I think it's important we cover, there are these kind of, I don't want to say strange, but different marks on her her lower left, the left side of her lower back and her cheek. These are described as abrasions in the autopsy report. And, you know, experts have varied on what could have caused these. So Lou Smith, the investigator I was talking about was with the DA's office. He believes they were caused by a stun gun. Uh, he even did an experiment with somebody. They did it on a pig that had been anesthetized and uh, you know, they stun gunned it with the stun gun that they thought was closest in the size with where the prongs would touch the skin. And essentially, he was fairly well convinced that, you know, that was what made those uh, those marks. The f- flip side of that is there are some who think that they were made with something else uh, that because of the nature of the wounds and the fact that it, it was described as abrasion, whatever else, that they were more like puncture marks. Uh, in that camp, you find uh, Warner Spitz, who's a pretty renowned guy in forensic science. And his opinion was that they were, at least it would be consistent that they had been made with uh, these train tracks that were in the basement, like in the train room. Now, I You mean from like a model train set? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, you I, know, you I put see. the tracks together yeah. and there's those metal parts that are at kind the end. Yeah, yeah. So, like prongs. The thing with the train tracks is, you know, it's the lower back and the cheek. What are you doing? Why? What's the point of the- Yeah, I don't know. I I think that's kind of strange. Both
1: of those are strange. I mean, sure. I'm with you on what, why, what are you doing with these train tracks as a weapon? Because that seems weird. But on the other hand, what kind of sicko is using a stun gun on a little six-year-old girl?
0: The kind that uses a garrote to strangle her while he sexually assaults her? I guess. I mean, that's where I think that actually kind of lines up in my mind because you know, whether, and there's arguments, well, did, did this person use it to incapacitate her? And then you see people do these experiments where, well, you stun gun somebody and they freak out, you know. I don't know. You got any experience with that? You've been, you've been tased?
1: No, I have. I've been on the other end of a taser, not on the receiving end.
0: Mm-hmm. And have you seen people re- react to being tased?
1: Uh, the reaction is usually like instant stiffness.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. You know, the muscles kind of lock up and they're tense, but then not only lasts until you stop you stop and then now they're free to go and I'm also familiar with uh, certain people who have seemed completely immune to the the stun gun
0: mm-hmm. It
1: more just pisses them off than anything but yeah uh, now that of course was the where you shoot the um
0: deployable taser yeah the yeah.
1: the hooks um i'm not i've not seen anybody dry tased in a way that that went well that they enjoyed
0: and uh, so you ever seen anybody pass out from being tased?
1: I have not personally, no.
0: So they, they, they seize up they, t- I think this is an interesting thing for us to talk about. So they seize up, you know, and it makes sense, right? You got all this electricity coursing through your body, your muscles, they all contract and do all that stuff. They stop the taser and then what's the person's demeanor typically like once the tasing is over?
1: Well, they didn't like it. None of them. I've never seen anybody go, that was fun. I want to ride the lightning again, <laughs> but it, you know, one of two things, most of the time they're pissed, uh, excited. Amped up yeah, and in the presence of, you know, law enforcement, when it's to gain compliance, then many times they often start behaving, but you can tell they're, they're amped up. They did not enjoy that.
0: So to the extent that anybody would suggest, oh, so this, this perpetrator went into her bedroom and tased her in her bedroom to get her to, to knock her out or to get her whatever. I tend to think that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but what do you think? No,
1: I don't, I don't see why you would go
0: that route. I also think a taser would be loud, louder than a lot of other ways you could get somebody to, I mean, you could get somebody into compliance. There are ways to do it so that they can't make noise. And I don't think a taser makes a lot of sense for that is what I'm trying to say.
1: Right. And a six-year-old is, as soon as the voltage stops, I would think is going to be screaming and throwing a fit. Right. They are not going to understand that this means I have to comply. Mm-hmm. Like a career criminal would.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. Another interesting piece of evidence that, you know, again, after so many years, you kind of read reports of how, oh, this, that, whatever. Uh, there was a high tech, that's a brand, high tech boot print that was found in the wine cellar, not far away from John Bonet's body. And the Ramses say, you know, nobody in the house, nobody, they never owned the brand of boots investigators never found any boots that were that brand or anything consistent with that in any of the Ramsey's belongings. And and this was one of those things that was sort of, you know, they they didn't really know. In recent years, I've seen some people say, oh, well now they think that it was probably one of the police officers who was at the scene early on that might've left it. Some, not the investigators or the police department, some other experts have hypothesized that it was actually Burke. That, I think, has been largely disputed or at least heavily disputed by the Ramses and those who have investigated on their part and other investigators that have been involved in the case. But
1: Burke was nine, right? Correct. He must have some big old feet if or, they think that's his footprint. Uh, yeah. Or uh, an adult police officer.
0: Right. I, yeah, I think I, I'm. I'm putting out what people, what some people have said. I'm not saying I subscribe to that at all. Uh, it's one of those things that's just sort of out there and has never really been cleared up in a way that's satisfying.
1: It would be hard to have a strict accounting on who's been in that that room even after the murder, because, like we said in the last episode, you you had the detective trying to give John something to do to keep him occupied, roaming around the house, uh, him and Fleet or whatever, mm-hmm. and. Who's to say those are the only two people that were kind of wandering around doing whatever. It doesn't sound like there was a real crime scene. Um, containment. Containment going on. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, if you missed the fact that one officer was there or one person from the ME's office that you didn't account for, that could create now this, whose bootprint is this? Or who knows? I mean, I'd say maybe it could have been like somebody nobody's thought of. Not that I think of things nobody else has, but I am weird but I'd say maybe it was like an exterminator, but apparently he wasn't doing a good job with spiders. So mm. guess he didn't go in that room. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Well, and what's interesting about the boot print is it's very, it looks like it's a very fresh, Yeah, it's very clear. The impression is very clear. So it makes you think that it had to be somebody who was there you know, some, somewhat recently. Uh, and, and given the proximity of the body, it's, it's just where the body was. It's, it's just kind of, odd and interesting and has never been explained now do i think it's the kind of thing that's like oh that's the linchpin that's going to solve the case no probably not but you never know
1: well hey i mean if they end up finding a pair of you know boots in some suspect's house whose dna matches and those boots match well then
0: yeah there you go now it's really important really the dna sounds like the key to me to figuring this thing out i don't disagree with you at all sir Uh, While we're talking about this wine cellar room, and I'm I'm jumping around on my outline here, I'm sorry, Uh, there's also uh, an unidentified palm print on the wine cellar door, door doorframe area. So, you know, that seems like that could be important, but it could also just be somebody who had at one point been in the house and had touched that doorframe and left a print and has nothing to do with anything.
1: This this lousy exterminator. Maybe, maybe. but we need to rule out whoever.
0: Right, exactly. Also, okay. it's important to talk about things that weren't in the house. The duct tape that was on John Bonet's mouth, it, it was a black duct tape. And the investigators never found that uh, anything in the house that indicated that that tape came from inside the house. So there was never, a, you know, a roll of black duct tape or anything consistent with that tape that was found inside the house.
1: That's interesting. Black duct tape in 1996. I mean, I know now You can get it in any color, you can get it in camouflage, you can get it in sparkles or unicorn print or whatever, but back then it was pretty much, your choices were silver, silver, and silver.
0: That's right, when duct tape was, yeah, just just silver duct tape. Yeah, so it's kind of, that's an interesting detail. Also, the the paracord that was used to bind her wrists and was also used as, um, on the the garrotte. My understanding is that the portion of that cord was, you know, how when you buy it, it's brand new, and it's kind of like been melted on the one end so that it all stays together. Use the fancy word for that. What's it? Aglet. Okay,
1: that's the that's the little hard part of your uh, shoestring that goes through the holes it's called an aglet. Okay,
0: well there you go. Learn a new word every day. So the aglet um, part of this uh, stuff that was on her had the aglet, and so investigators figure that. Whoever did this was using some new rope, because, you know, that makes sense. And the rope that was used, there was never any rope like that that was found in the house. Also, there's a part of the broken paintbrush that was used for the garage, um, that was never recovered. Remember the paintbrush that was used for the garrotte, the piece of it came from Patsy's paint supplies that were also in the basement. And so there was another part of the brush, I, th- I want to say that maybe like the bristle part, that was still over there kind of with her paint supplies or in, in the basement. And then there's the part that's, you know, fashioned into a garage. Well, there's apparently a piece that's missing that was never recovered anywhere in the house or during the investigation. Wow. There's apparently some evidence that potentially she was sexually assaulted and potentially there was, I think they recovered or found, there was wood fibers or something that led them to believe that perhaps the paintbrush was used. It makes you wonder if this is a really sick individual was part of this paintbrush taken as like a trophy or something to relive or remember the crime. That's completely anecdotal. That's just a thought.
1: Yeah, or did someone known to that home, whether it's someone that lived there or that was comfortable there, intentionally gather up some evidence and take it to uh, make it look like this was an unknown person you know that's that's weird they have to be pretty smart and some of this other stuff seems pretty disorganized so I don't know
0: yeah that's a good that's a really good point point. and then of course you know until we talked a little bit earlier about the notepad that the ransom letter was written in uh, there were seven pages from that notepad that were missing that were never found and they were kind of able investigators were able to determine based on, okay, here's the last page that's most recently been written in by Patsy. And then we they figured out that the pages that the ransom note were written were these last of 10 pages, and there's three pages of notes. And so then there's these seven pages in between those pages that were just gone and were not in the house. Nowhere, not in the trash, not anywhere. They were never able to find them. Wow. Another piece of evidence from the case, and now turning back to things that were around the crime scene, there's a Maglite flashlight that is on the counter that the Ramses said. They didn't leave that there. Early on, my understanding is they said it wasn't their flashlight. I have heard some discussion about this, that when they were shown a picture of it and said, hey, you know, is this flashlight your flashlight? Uh, it was covered in fingerprinting dust. And so, you know, it looked gray and different and dirty and whatever. And that's not our flashlight. And so it's, at, at least in some of the things I've read, There's this idea that maybe it was their flashlight because they did have one like that, that they kept in a drawer in the kitchen and that wasn't in the drawer, but the way that it was presented to them, it didn't look like theirs because theirs was clean and whatever. It's also worth noting that the Maglite flashlight had no fingerprints on it and that they actually unscrewed the flashlight, took the batteries out and printed the batteries and there were no fingerprints on any of the batteries, which led investigators to believe that everything had been wiped down clean.
1: Wow. Uh, there's some weirdness here. I mean, if, if it's an outside person, like, why not just take that flashlight with you and dump it somewhere rather than take it apart, wipe batteries, wipe everything. I just, I'm not saying it's not didn't happen or not possible, just that's odd.
0: Well, I mean, same thing, right? If it's outside person, why would you leave the pen you wrote the note with there? Yeah. But again, there's no prints on the pen, so apparently they wiped it clean. Or they wore gloves, potentially.
1: I could go along with gloves on the pen. But the batteries, that's weird.
0: Well, OK, think about it this way, though. If the flashlight really was the Ramses, and they just didn't recognize it because it was on the counter and it was covered in fingerprint dust and they're like, that's not our flashlight. So it's already in their house. Think about, I don't know, I don't know how they put the batteries in them when they're new in the factory, but if it still had the batteries from the factory, maybe it wouldn't have. I don't know.
1: Hmm. Yeah, there's, I'm sure there's a plausible explanation.
0: There's some explanation. We just don't know what it is. While we're on the kitchen counter, the kind of the island counter, whatever you want to call it, there's another, there's some other things there that are, man, you want to talk about flashpoint people argue about in this case.
1: In the next episode, we'll explore the pineapple theory. Bring your tinfoil hat for that one. And we'll find out about the divide between the police and the DA's office that led to resignations and declarations. And we'll talk about a whole lot more. Come on back. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode.